Welcome to the Wildlife Health Talks. I'm your host, Kat, and this is our eighth episode introducing WDA members and their amazing work all over the world. This time we're in sunny Sydney in Australia. My guest today is Dr. Rachel Gray. Rachel is an Associate Professor in Veterinary Pathology at the University of Sydney. Rachel studies the health of one of the most endangered animal species in Australia, the Australian sea lion, and she explores methods to save these rare animals. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Thanks very much, Kat. It's great to be here. Um, let's start with our usual WDA-related questions. When did you join the WDA? Well, my first conference was at Healesville in 2003 when I was a PhD student. So I'm assuming I must have joined in 2003. Um, and that was, yeah, that was one of my first research conferences as an actual research student. And I assume since this was a, the Australian conference of the WDA, it was like really low key as usual in like yes. a school camp setting. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes, I didn't even I didn't even actually stay for that one. It was, but it was in this small small hall um, near Hillsville Zoo. It was a really really nice little venue, and it, yes, it was a very small, quite intimate conference. <laughs> and um, talking about your favorite memories related to the WDA, um, do you have any others, or what's your favorite memory when you think of the WDA? So there, there's quite a lot. I guess to me, I was thinking about this, this morning is that I went from, you know, presenting as a student in 2003 um, and several other conferences, you know, and, and then became, you know, became an, an academic. And I went to the Catlins in New Zealand in 2009, which was a wonderful conference because it was in the South Island of New Zealand. That was just a great experience. Um, and then I guess another really great one was the Cairns um, conference, which was the International WDA conference. And that was a bit of a big move for me because I actually, it wasn't just myself. I think I had four students presenting at the same time. Um, and then uh, I guess another one that I really enjoyed was the Falls Creek Conference um, in 2017. So Falls Creek is a ski area in, in Victoria in Australia. And um, that was the first time that my family actually came um, to a WDA conference. And so I, I kind of feel like I've gone through the full circle of starting starting out as a student, taking some students and then bringing, bringing the family along, which is one of the great pleasures of, of Australian WDA conferences is, is that sort of you know, welcoming of family and welcoming of, of the extended sort of people of, of interest to, to wildlife in Australia. That's awesome. I actually remember that conference as well. Did you actually also take your family to the cross-country skiing day on our day off during the conference? I didn't get to do the cross-country skiing that day. My, actually, my husband went with one of my students because I had one place booked, um, but I did actually take my kids um, to the snow with some other WDA um, participants that day. So we certainly enjoyed our snow time. <laughs> nice. Cool. Let's move on to your actual work and um, let's go back a little bit in your personal history because your PhD must have been really cool. You worked on leopard seals in Antarctica. What was it like to do field work in Antarctica? Um, I guess the field work in Antarctica was probably one of the highlights of my life at that time and still remains, you know, one of the most wonderful memories of, of the time because I managed to get to spend two summers um, at Davis Station in Antarctica. So one of them was six months long one was about five months long um, and I think the people that you meet and working with Antarctica kind of um, set you up to appreciate the diversity of you know experience and knowledge that there is in this world and obviously Antarctica is just an amazing place to be and and it was always a dream to work in Antarctica and work on wildlife um, so I was very fortunate to be able to achieve that dream. 
So leopard seals are quite a special species of seals. Um, how come you decided to study them? Well, I I was very obsessed with Antarctica from quite a young age. I think I think um, in year 10, when I had to put in my application for work experience, I said that one of my goals is to work in Antarctica on seals. So, you know, I was heading along that way or wanted to head along that way for a long time. Um, and at the time I'd finished, you know, I'd done my veterinary degree. I'd worked as a vet. I was looking to do some further study. And I saw that there was a group working at the um, Marine Mammal Centre at Taronga Zoo and, and Kat, you know, tr Dr. Tracy Rogers, who um, you also worked with at UNSW, she had a project um, looking at health, disease, foraging, acoustic behaviour of leopard and weddell seals in Antarctica. And I was really fortunate to be able to go along on those projects. Oh, that sounds awesome. And yeah, for the audience, I have to um, add here, yes, we did have the same supervisor, Professor Tracy Rogers, yeah. <laughs> which, which is very cool. So although the leopard seals, I'm sure, are super special species to work with, but probably also not the easiest. So what was it to work with them? What was it, it like? Yeah, it certainly is a challenge working with leopard seals. Obviously, they're not all um, hanging out together in one little area that you can go in, and they're obviously quite dangerous animals. So um, I'll give you a quick day in the life of a leopard seal researcher that I Jeez. experienced. So we would we would literally get ready, go up in the helicopter for an hour, an hour and a half every morning, and we would um, locate leopard seals from the air and we'd get their GPS um, locations. Then we'd get out of the helicopter and depending on whether the fast ice was still attached to the station or not, or whether we were looking at just um, the Antarctic Southern Ocean, we'd either get on a skidoo or a quad bike and go to those GPS locations to find the leopard seals, or we'd get in a Zodiac boat and travel out there on the water straight to those leopard seals. And obviously, um, the ice flows are moving all the time, so sometimes we didn't find them very easily on some days. Um, but basically, you know, we could. I think I think there was a day where we did about four leopard seals in one day, and that that was a pretty amazing day to be able to manage to get that many that many um, captures of these animals. So obviously, they're they're quite um, dangerous. Um, so we did have to anesthetize the animals to to do all the work that we did. But and then after we collected all the samples. Um, a lot of my evening was spent actually processing blood samples um, and then preparing for the next day. So um, helicopters, zodiac boats, skidoos, quad bikes. I mean, it sounds pretty good and it was pretty good, I have to say. Um, and they are just amazing animals, just amazing creatures. <laughs> that sounds really awesome. Did you get seasick on the helicopter? Yes, I did used to get, <laughs> used to get seasick on the helicopter. Um, not so much in the zodiac boats, except when we were um, you know, stationary. But yeah, I did get quite sick, especially looking out trying to trying to find them. But I'm sure it was worth it, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I've never had so much helicopter time and I'm sure I never will again. <laughs> Since your PhD, you've branched out and started working with other seal species, particularly the Australian sea lions. Um, let's start with some Australian sea lion basics for people who haven't really um, had much to do with them, which I guess is the majority of people. So where can you find Australian, Australian sea lions in, in Australia? So the Australian sea lions are there, the only endemic pinniped to Australian waters. So they're only in, in Australia and they range from the Hoopman and Abrolis Islands in Western Australia, which is sort of north, almost almost north um, towards Broome. And then they go all the way around the coast of WA, South Australia to what we call the Pages Islands, which is very close to... Um, only, only a couple of hours from um, Adelaide, the main main capital city of South Australia. So literally confined to two states, Western Australia and South Australia. 
And the IUCN lists the Australian sea lion as endangered and there are only up to about 10,000 individuals left. What are the main factors that are threatening them? So unfortunately for the Australian sea lion, there are a lot of um, threatening processes. Um, we predominantly work on disease and particularly disease of pups, as well as looking at toxicants and other pollutants. But there's a lot of interactions with fisheries. There's um, aspects of prey depletion. Climate change is certainly going to be an impact for this species because many of them, um, many of the colonies are on low-lying islands, offshore islands. So obviously climate change will have a big impact. Um Predation by great white sharks is is um, a cause of adult mortality and things like um, bycatch and entanglement by um, recreational and commercial fisheries is obviously quite, quite a big problem. Um, there are a lot of other threats that, you know, we assume might be operating, um, but not enough research has, has been done to actually identify them as threats. But the other, I guess the other thing that is key to mention about the Australian sea lion is that... Um, they were harvested, you know, in the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries for their for their for their pelts, along with the fur seal species in Australia. But they have failed to recover from that harvesting, while the the other the fur seal species have. And part of that part of that lack of recovery is is probably related to the fact that they have this u really unique reproductive behaviour where they only breed every 18 months, whereas most pinnipeds are annual breeders. So they have an 18-month breeding interval. They have a really long um, maternal investment for their offspring. And their breeding cycle is um, asynchronous across that range. So you could have a colony that is literally two kilometres away and it could be six months out of sync with its neighbouring colony in terms of breeding. Um, so it just has a lot of really interesting and and quite challenging um, life history constraints that also make recovery a little more challenging for this species. Yeah. Do you have any idea, is there, are there any hypotheses out there why they differ so much in their reproduct reproductive cycle in comparison to other um, seal species? Yeah, well, they, they, I mean, there are, there are hypotheses. I don't know um, how evidence-based they are, but certainly they talk about avoiding um, shark predation. So instead of having, you know, a colony breeding every, you know, at the same time every year and the sharks are literally like, okay, let's go over here now because that's where all the pups are. Um, they think that they're spreading out that um, that risk of predation by having asynchronous breeding sites and not an annual reproductive cycle as well. So maybe that it's less predictable for those those apotrophic predators to actually prey on them. Um, and they also think it could be related to prey availability. So trying to spread out the demand for prey um, in what is generally considered to be a relatively um, prey poor um, marine ecosystem. Yeah, very interesting. And um, I have to point out for people who are not familiar with them, um, they are very, very pretty pinny pets, aren't they? So They are beautiful, yes. But I, I do think they're the most beautiful pinniped that we have. So <laughs> I'll just put it out there. Oh, for sure. No, I'm just um, just to add to um, the fact you mentioned that they were severely and hunted in the um, in the 19th century. That um, there is definitely a point to it because they have such nice fur. So, which is a shame for them, but um, yeah. So, do you think the difference in their reproductive cycle and reproductive biology is that the only reason why they're do doing fairly poorly comp compared to other pinniped species, which are almost um, using the same habitat in, in the south of Australia? So, we have the long-nosed fur seals and the Australian fur seals, and they are doing fairly well. So, it's kind of, kind of um, strange, isn't it, that um, there are three different pinniped species but only one is actually really struggling 
Yeah, that's a that's a really good point, Kat. And I guess um, the in terms of conservation status, so obviously the Australian sea lion is classified as endangered, whereas the Australian fur seal and the long-nosed fur seal, which were previously known as the New Zealand fur seal, um, they are both um, listed as of least concern. So they're not threatened or vulnerable, although that is a little bit different in terms of um, particular state legislation. So it, it is a little bit different. And in fact, the Australian fur seal, some of the colony sites are experiencing declines at, at the moment, whereas the long-nosed fur seal seems to be doing really well. And, and as basic, I, I see it as a really amazing um, recovery for a species that was hunted almost to extinction. So I think we really should be celebrating that, that um, recovery for for particularly the long-nosed and the Australian fur seal. The Australian sea lion, yes, the, that unique reproductive biology is, is not going to help recovery very much. Um, and so that is definitely going to be problematic. And I think they also have other threats um, that the other two species don't necessarily have. And one of those is disease. So we've been looking at hookworm disease in Australian sea lion pups and in the fur seal species since about 2006 now. And pretty much the Australian sea lion gets really severe disease with hookworm infection, whereas neither of those first seal species do. And I think that's related to a lot of different factors. Um, but there are certainly different different threats to these species. Um, things like um, overlap with fisheries can be problematic, particularly for the Australian sea lion. Um, and I, I think in general, the Australian sea lion just has, um, I guess, more cumulative impacts perhaps. And because they went through a bottleneck um, associated with sealing, they also have really low, low genetic diversity. And so that's obviously um, problematic in terms of population resilience as well. Mm, yeah, that makes a lot of sense for sure. So you mentioned the hookworms, which are a massive issue for the Australian sea lions. Do you remember that correctly, that the pubs have about a 100% um, prevalence of infection with the hookworms? Yeah, that's correct. So every pup older than 11 to 14 days of age, which is when um, hookworm disease can be detected, will have hookworm infection. And interestingly, um, infection the infection burden in Australian sea lions is, is very high in comparison to, say, the other otarid species, say California sea lions, northern fur seals. And also we know that the specific species of hookworm that they have, which is called Uncinaria sanguinis, is a highly pathogenic um, parasite. So a combination of factors there that mean that we see quite significant disease impacts on, these, on Australian sea lion pups. And oftentimes that does translate into mortality of pups. And is there any hypothesis that the hookworm infection that this might actually be an kind of invasive parasite that hasn't always been there? Yeah, so I, I mean, I I really believe that, you know, they, these parasites and the hosts, obviously they've co-evolved over, over thousands and thousands of years. I think what we're seeing now is the extent of disease that we're seeing in Australian sea lion pups is, you know, reflecting the cumulative impacts that are operating for this particular system. So there's a low judge genetic diversity we know they've got low mhc compatibility diversity as well which will inf um, impact the immune response we know they've got a highly pathogenic pathogen operating we know that the um, locations of the colony so these the australian sea lion prefers sandy so it, it likes the beach um, they prefer to haul out on on sandy sandy areas less likely rocky areas which is very different to what the fur seal species do and hookworm larvae and eggs can survive really well in nice sandy conditions so the substrate that the animals are on um, is also really important and i also think um 
starting to see more and more the importance of the anthropogenic toxicants on the immune response in these animals. And we're specifically looking now at some um, impacts of persistent organic pollutants, including um, PFAS and the impact of that on the immune system in pups and whether that is actually increasing the susceptibility of Australian sea lion pups to disease. Yeah, so that's actually really good um, kind of segue into my question about your, um, like in more detail, your research project. So what do you and your students um, look at? Yeah, so at the moment we've got a, we've got a. I guess we, as um, veterinarians, we we look at things um, under sort of the model of the host pathogen environment um, interaction, and so we're looking at, at at bits and pieces of that HPE interaction to see if we can work out, um, you know, what might be considered to be important in terms of delete disease elaboration. So at the moment, I have, um, or I just had a student complete. Um, work Marielle Fulham just did her finished her PhD she was looking at E. coli diversity um, across the three pinniped species in Australia looking at antibiotic resistance and also looking at impacts of um, treatment of hookworm which is which I'll, I'll mention briefly in a minute on um, microbial diversity in the intestinal tract I've got another student Shannon Taylor who's looking at toxicants and particularly at, at things like heavy metals PFAS and persistent organic pollutants and again across the three species because I really see the three species as a good way of comparing and contrasting and seeing you know what may be impacting one species may not necessarily be important in one of the others so that's um, it's been wonderful to be able to actually look across the three species that you know uh, feature the most in Australian waters and look at if the impacts are different and if they are different, what are the implications of those differences on health and disease? I've got another student, um, Scott Lindsay, who he is looking at the impact of treating hookworm on Australian sea lions and looking at if that actually translates to improvements in survival. And we've certainly been able to show that we can improve growth and health status in pups that are treated with um, topical ivermectin. So that's kind of been the focus over the last, um, really the last four or five years, um, particularly on, on Kangaroo Island. So does it mean you think, so from, from your research now, it has been looking quite promising from what I understand, um, that oh, the treatment absolutely. really helps them. So do you think that might be an outlook for the future to um, support the population in general? Yeah, so I guess that's that's a that's a very timely question, Kat, because I just um, submitted our report to our funding body and and the government partner that's been working on this, and you know demonstrating that you know we can show up to forty two percent improvements in in growth in length and thirty four percent improvement in growth in weight in pups when they're treated with ivermectin, and we have we have just got to the point of getting eighteen month survival data. Um, on Australian sea, and pups, Australian sea lion pups treated with ivermectin in a high mortality summer season. And we've been able to show that um, we get significant improvements in survival in that early neonatal period. And that improved survival actually continues. And we've got, we've followed these, this particular cohort to 18 months of age, which is the weaning age of pups. And that improvement in survival is sustained till weaning, which is a really positive um, thing to see because once once Australian sea lions get weaned and if they survive that really, you know, quite crucial time post-weaning where they're on their own completely, mm. off their foraging, if they can survive that period, their survival is actually really good until, um, you know, for into adulthood. So we're looking at um, how the utility 
potentially of treating animals in different different situations and certainly high mortality seasons seem to be um, important for if we mitigate hookworm disease in high mortality seasons that will likely translate into improvements in health individual welfare as well as survival and that's what we've been talking to um, the managers of of um, Australian sea lion populations about just in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, nice. So there's, it sounds like there is definitely a silver lining on the horizon for the Australian sea lions, which is really good. But they are such a good example for the, yeah, for the issue of um, the high extinction rate of um, endemic animals in Australia. So Australia has one of the highest extinction rates of endemic animals in comparison to any other country in the world. Do you have any, like, what is the what do you think what is the reason for that obviously it's such a huge variety of really um amazing wildlife um, but it's not doing well where where does that come from i think so so that's a massive question cat um <laughs> obviously I, i'm not going to be able to answer that um you know in its entirety but i think for for me a couple of things that i think are are that don't help um what's happening in australia is that i think we I think we have been so blessed with so many amazing unique species that we we have kind of taken them for granted both um you know at a at a population level and perhaps we've not valued put as much value on them as we could have um so I think not valuing them as part of you know the importance to society is probably part of it I think they are so unique that it can be really difficult to actually manage species that are in decline or that need intervention and I think also um, in Australia we are we are quite reluctant to intervene in in many situations in in free-ranging wildlife and that's why I guess out doing our treatment trials our ivermectin treatment trials to eliminate hookworm has garnered a bit of interest because it is, it is a pretty um, big step to take in terms of actually intervening in natural disease in an in a free-ranging population so and particularly for marine species I think we can't it's very difficult to see the threats that are happening to aquatic animals we we look at the ocean and it looks great and we think oh it's lovely everything's happy and healthy down there um, but until you actually start investigating the different threats and what's going on, um, it all appears like everything's great. So I think part of, part of the issue for us as well is that um, we just don't recognise what all the threats are, and if we don't, if we can't identify the threats and the risks, then it's very very hard to to mitigate for those. So that's a really really big question, and I guess um, you know part of our work is just is just trying to see if if there is anything we can do to improve the recovery of the Australian sea lion specifically. That's, I guess, what a prime focus is of, of our group um, and to recognise what threats, threats are there and perhaps are there ones that can actually be mitigated. On a more cheerful note, maybe you can tell us an anecdote or two what it's like to work with Australian sea lions in the wild and uh, maybe you have like a slightly unfortunate yet entertaining anecdote to share when you were out there in the wild with them. Yeah, so, well, there's many of those, Kat, um, and my students would probably laugh about many of the experiences we've had together. I guess, firstly, it's, it is an absolute privilege to be able to work with Australian sea lions in the wild. They are just an amazing animal. Um, very challenging, the fact that, you know, they only breed every 18 months and that's asynchronous against the colonies, you know, amongst the colonies means that they're a really challenging species to, um, to work with. Um, we've certainly been chased on innumerable occasions by adult females um, 
not necessarily defending their own offspring, but defending any offspring that they feel <laughs> might be under threat by us. Um, so we, we've had lots of quick quick runs out of danger in um, a lot of different situations. Um, I've certainly had many, many sea lion bites um, and fur seal bites as well, some of which have necessitated um, more dramatic exits from particular oh. sites. But, um, you know, I think in general, it's just every single day I'm in the colony and I, I managed to get into the colony, into a, a sea lion colony last week to do some microchip scanning. I'm just, um, I just feel privileged that I actually am in a position where I can work with these animals and the people that actually work with Australian sea lions from, you know, other researchers to government agencies, people on the ground, they're just an amazing group of people that are just really passionate um, about, you know, helping pinnipeds and particularly helping Australian sea lions. So I think it, it's a real privilege to actually be able to work in this space. <laughs> That's awesome. Thanks so much for being my guest on the show, Rachel. Absolute pleasure, Kat. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Wildlife Health Talks. We will be back with a new story next time. Bye for now.